0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Fresh Off the Set.
1: I'm Carrie Hawker Diaz. And I'm Sarah Jenkins. And thank you so much for listening. So, today we have a very serious topic to talk about. We do. Um, A few weeks ago, Utah State University just released this report about eating disorders. This one pertains specifically to women here in Utah. You know, we've talked in the past about eating disorders on the show on this podcast, but this time we wanted to talk more about pointedly in Utah women and triggers and um, how Utah women are really being impacted. On a larger scale, this recent US study talked about how many people are impacted by uh, eating disorders will suffer and it's projected that 28.8 million. Wow. Some point in their lives This is so many people. Um, And then estimates for the Utah population show that 9% or around almost 300,000 people will experience an eating disorder at some point in their lives. And then, of course, we talk about risk factors and triggers for eating disorders. They can vary for each person. Mm But one thing that they often include is uh, negative media influences, you know. And how do we avoid that, right, Carrie? I mean, right. it's everywhere, ever-present. So. Right. We're
0: seeing it, yeah. Every time you get on social media, it can be a comparison game. And so I know that um, when I talk to Dr. Sarah Bohosian, she talks about that is actually one of the triggers. But um, the Utah Women Leadership Project highlights multiple risk factors that put girls and women at risk for eating disorders. We also talk about men and children. We do have a trigger warning for this episode. There will be discussions about mental health, suicide, and eating disorders. If those subjects are difficult for you right now, you're welcome to skip this week's episode. We understand. Um, Now, let's get to the interview with a clinical assistant professor at Utah State University and a licensed psychologist who's involved with the study. Should we give it a listen? Let's do it. I am chatting with Dr. Sarah Bahosian today. She's a clinical assistant professor at Utah State University and a licensed psychologist. Dr. Bahosian, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Such an important topic that we discuss. Let's maybe start with how prevalent are eating disorders right here in
2: Utah? Well, you know, the hard thing is, is we don't have great data on that. Um, what we know is that rates for eating disorders are rising uh, globally and nationally. Uh, we know they're very prevalent in the United States, and we have no reason to suspect that those rates um, are different here in the state of Utah. And as a psychologist here in the state of Utah, that's um an expert on working with this population, I know that um, we are seeing them in our practices
0: uh,
2: here in Utah. Okay, and are are women or men
0: more likely to suffer from an eating disorder?
2: Yeah, so it's pretty clear from the data that women are far more likely to experience eating disorders. However, persons identifying as men do experience eating disorders as well, and, it, and that shouldn't be ignored. Uh, but a recent Utah study. Um, analyzed data uh, covering folks who had been diagnosed with eating disorders across a 10-year span. And 90.8% of those were female. Interesting. Okay. And Dr.
0: Pahosian, what about kids and children? Do we see it as young as, you know, children in six, seven, eight, nine years old?
2: You know, I do. Um, I do, which is a, is a really sad thing to think about. Um, you know, there's... Um, some data to suggest that eating disorders are triggered kind of most often uh, right around puberty and then again um, a little later after um, childbirth, but we are seeing eating disorders emerging in young children as well.
0: Okay, okay. And, and if we're talking about just the definition of an eating disorder, what is that?
2: So an oversimplified answer to this question, for the sake of time, is that an eating disorder is a disturbance and how someone is relating to food, body, and or exercise that's interfering with their health and functioning in multiple areas of their life. Um, if It's important to note that a person does not have to be... Um, kind of statistically underweight in order to have a debilitating and potentially life-threatening eating disorder. So, um, it, what we're most interested in when we're diagnosing eating disorders is the time that someone is spending, thinking about, worrying about, focusing on food, body, and or exercise. And that's more important than size and determining eating disorder status. Um, and so, uh, the behaviors they're engaging in is what will predict um, the type of eating disorder that um, they would be classified as. Okay.
0: Okay. That's, that's interesting. And, and speaking of the type, there are different types. Let's talk about those for right. a minute.
2: Right. Yeah. So we've got a long list of uh, 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 fancy names uh, for these, you know, like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, other uh, specified feeding or eating disorder um, avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder, binge eating disorder. Um, these are just some of the different types of classifications that um, psychiatrists, physicians, and psychologists kind of have to, um, to sort of um, classify the type of eating disorder that we're treating. However, um, these, are, these distinctions are more important for the purpose of treatment planning um, and not it isn't that one is more deadly than the other. Um, you know, they're all, um, similarly dangerous. Um, and so, um, you know, sometimes in the eating disorder, um, the world of sufferers of eating disorders, it feels like there's a hierarchy, a right one to have a wrong one to have, but in, in my world, um, they're all, um, devastating and dangerous and, um, deserve treatment. Sure. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about the risk
0: factors and triggers for eating disorders. I have a list here. Let's just talk about each of them. I'm going to start with, I imagine social media is a big one.
2: Right. Yeah. So it's pretty clear, uh, that, uh, societies, um, with a greater focus upon image, um, thinness and societies with um, greater access to social media um, have more eating disorders. Um, and, and the way that I think about this is that um, <clears throat> social media allows us to do on a much grander scale what humans are prone to do anyway, which is to compare our insides to other people's outsides, meaning, you know, I'm sitting in in my Messy life with all my messy thoughts and feelings and emotions and insecurities and fears and worries and hard, hard internal stuff. And I'm looking at somebody on Instagram and all I see is their shiny, um, you know, their smile, their, you know, they're posting their good moment. And, And so it sort of sets the stage. Um, for this kind of negative comparing that can be a big part of what triggers an eating disorder for someone.
0: Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, that that absolutely can be a trigger. Um, the second one I have on here is pregnancy.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it turns out that pregnancy can be a big risk factor for the development of eating disorders, and um, something like one in twenty women who you know have a pregnancy um, will um, struggle. Um, to navigate the changes in the body that come with that. Um, And then, you know, uh, folks can get in a big, big hurry to get back to that pre-pregnancy body, that pre-pregnancy rate. And that can be another point Mm -hmm. that could trigger engaging in behaviors that you then lose control of and can't stop. Sure, sure. Now,
0: is this during pregnancy, Dr. After? Both could be either? Yeah,
2: so uh, both. Yeah, both. Yeah. Okay, Um, number three trauma. Right. Yeah. So trauma is consistently found in the research literature to be a common risk factor for eating disorders. Um, and and this relationship seems to be related to the fact that engaging in eating disorder behaviors um, can come with um, some some relief. Um, you know, it, it's kind of Uh, sometimes classified in with addictive disorders in that way where it is kind of a way of coping Mm -hmm. and uh, it can be a powerful distraction from things that are really painful to be with internally. And so sometimes folks um, with trauma can stumble onto eating disorder behaviors as a way of coping and then it can kind of lose control of it. I I feel like it's really important to to mention that when I think about the etiology of an eating disorder, I rarely think of it as something where we would ever find a smoking gun or a a set um, list of things that would trigger an eating disorder. It's a bit more like a perfect storm for each individual um, where um, some combination and permutation of triggers add up to the culmination of an eating disorder and it's a little bit different for each individual and I've treated, you know, women with severe eating disorders who didn't have trauma in their backstory and, and I've even treated individuals who didn't have the negative body image that is so commonly associated with eating disorders and of course that's rare, but it, mm-hmm. there's not one pathway to the development of an eating disorder. Sure, sure. Okay, um, next
0: on our list, number four, suicide.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the reality is that individuals diagnosed with eating disorders are they're at significant risk for attempting and completing suicide. And studies show individuals diagnosed with eating disorders being four to six times more likely to attempt suicide than those wow. who are not diagnosed with eating disorders. So it's it, it's a big leap in risk um, when someone has an eating disorder. Okay.
0: Um, the last one I have number five, healthcare access.
2: right, right. So um, you know the reality is is that um, there aren't enough of us um, really anywhere, but especially in Utah, in my experience who have expertise and training. In treating eating disorders and the, the sad reality is that well-intentioned, thoughtful, well-trained providers who don't have this expertise um, can do a lot of harm in um, meeting with individuals with eating disorders. Oh, it can go the other uh, way. Yeah, because they don't have this training to to catch it, to know what they're seeing, and to know what the recommendations would be. And and the reality is is that the way that we as a society broadly, but specifically as a healthcare system, attempt to address obesity. Um, actually serves to make eating disorders worse, and I would argue don't doesn't appear to be uh, positively impacting obesity numbers either. And so you can get someone in a doctor's office who appears to the doctor to be overeating, um, you know, so they're getting recommendations to do more dieting, you know, um, and and in reality they're restricting heavily. Um, And and so that's just one of the many ways that providers who don't have this expertise can do harm. And so, you know, I think what's really depressing to me is that there are folks suffering with eating disorders in our community who can't get in with an eating disorder specialist because there aren't enough of us. And so I would... um, you know, if I could say anything on this podcast, I would be advocating for more resources to get folks trained, because people don't want to be doing harm in their practices. You know, right. to get more training, so that you know our medical providers, our dietitians, and our therapists out in the community kind of know how to spot an eating disorder and then respond appropriately.
0: Okay, okay. And uh, speaking of spotting a eating disorder, what are some signs that we can look for in a loved one or a friend?
2: Right so whew, I would say food restriction is probably the 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 biggest sign this would be present in all the different eating disorders um, and so they, if someone could start restricting types of food that they eat or amounts that they eat. That would be a red flag. Um, preoccupation with food or dieting um, would, would be another red flag. Social withdrawal um, is something that you see um, once somebody clicks over into the mindset of an eating disorder. Um, and then, you know, another red flag would be in, increased exercise behaviors, kind of rigidity with, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm missing an important valued family event because it's my gym time um, and, and, and less relaxation time. People start to struggle to kind of be still and, and relax.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, how, Doctor, how can we help eliminate eating disorders from our lives and our society just as a whole and our community? Is there anything we can do?
2: Right, so so some some tips as individuals, you know, we can read about healthy body image. We can expand and follow influencers in our social media that promote body acceptance and healthy body image. So we're kind of balancing out our feed, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and not just having a feed that's overly influenced by perfectionistic body image standards. We can read about health at every size and intuitive eating, which are some great approaches to kind of think about our relationship with food. We can examine our own conceptions of beauty and how, how we've related it to our self-worth and kind of take a critical view of some of what we've absorbed um, in our upbringing. We can be more mindful about how often we're engaging in diet talk or um, negative talk about bodies, especially in front of children and teens who are really sort of developing their understanding of um good versus bad? What is beautiful? Where does worth come from? Um, and we can focus much more on how our bodies can help us engage in meaningful activities and move towards our values rather than upon what our bodies or the bodies of others look like. So those are all tips for us as individuals. As a society, again, I would say we need more training and support for healthcare providers who are encountering um, individuals with eating disorders in the healthcare system.
0: Okay. That's really good information. And if we are seeing a friend or family member struggling and we want to have that conversation with them to try to help, it can be a little scary to bring that up with somebody. What is your suggestion with that?
2: Yeah, it's such a good question because one of the hallmark characteristics of, of eating disorders is that folks don't tend to... Uh, think they have one, mm-hmm. and and so you know people can be really protective of these behaviors that are helping them cope with life, and so a head-on kind of assault doesn't go over very well. Right. I I, I think it, uh, I think our best bet is to let someone know that we're concerned, um, you know, to share what we're seeing and that we're concerned, and to let them know that we're there. Um, And then I think looking to the National Eating Disorder um Association's website, they've got a lot of resources for loved ones, for sufferers, and they can really help guide some of these conversations and connect people to the resources that are in their communities.
0: Okay, that was my next question. Once we maybe get permission from somebody to reach out for help, where can we turn for help? Where's the best
2: place? Yeah, I would look to and uh, the National Eating Disorder Association, as kind of step one, because I think from there they can they can link people to um, the resources that that make sense for their situation and in their communities, and they have um, a lot of volunteers and individuals working to to help do that. Okay, well, this is wonderful
0: information. It's critical that we. We help our friends and family if they're struggling, and so this is these are good things to know, signs to watch out for, and a way that we can reach out and get them some assistance. Dr. Sarah Bahosian, thank you so much for chatting with me today. We appreciate you so much. Thanks so much for making the time. Of course. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and we will see you next week.